0: contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome and today on the Afternoon Light podcast I'm joined by Anne Henderson who is the Deputy Director of the Sydney Institute. She is also the author of several books on Australian politics including Enid Lyons, Leading Lady to a Nation, Joseph Lyons, the People's Prime Minister, and Menzies at War, which was shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Australian History Prize in 2015. But she's also the author of a brand new monograph on Dame Margaret Guilfoyle, which has just been published by Connor Court, and about which we will speak today. So welcome to Afternoon Light, Anne. Hi there, Georgina. Thanks for having me. Oh no, it's an absolute pleasure, Anne. And uh, I wanted to start our discussion by really talking to you about Dame Margaret Guilfoyle's upbringing because she came from really interesting background. She wasn't born in Australia, was she? She uh, she was born in Northern Ireland in Belfast and was a was mm-hmm. a migrant. But she she didn't have the easiest of starts to life, which um you know often often is the case for for people who mm-hmm. end up being being brilliant oh and I I should also say I mean why we are talking about her is she is one of the many liberal women who were women of firsts in Australia first woman to hold a cabinet level ministerial portfolio in Australia and the first woman to hold a major economic portfolio and she was a liberal senator for Victoria so a pretty brilliant woman but tell me about her her tough upbringing Anne.
1: Well she used to say that um in terms of her background status as a migrant, she could have ticked all the boxes for a migrant except being able to speak English. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah, she was born in Belfast and her father was in the constabulary where for possibly reasons of his health, um, he they chose to come out to Australia uh, when Margaret was about three. She was born in 1926. And they came to Victoria and settled in Alpington or thereabouts And uh, he wasn't well. He got a job, but when she was about 10, he died. And that left her mother with, she had, Margaret had an older brother and then a younger sister that was born about the time, not long after they arrived in Australia. So there was a mother with um, three children under 12, and in those days, she possibly had a some kind of work pension if he had been in the state public service or just a widow's pension. It wouldn't have been a very large amount of money and they weren't, they were renting, they didn't have a house of their own. And so the mother brought the three of them up and Margaret says they were rich in everything except money. They, she was obviously one of these very capable mothers who could save a penny every turn of the moment. She had, I think, she had been a teacher of some kind, and she was bright. Read stories to the children. Uh, Margaret talks fondly of the neighbourhood kids. They roamed in packs. They had a park across the road. She remembers her father's funeral as being all that week. He died with the Melbourne Cup, and she missed the Sunday school, uh, the Sunday school uh, celebrations for the cup because it was a week of mourning for them. And so it was a great community, and they were Presbyterian at a time when the church was very involved in their social life. So from the very outset, she knew what it was like to go without and struggle, and but very strong bonds of community and strong family bonds, and that's that's how Margaret grew up.
0: And she um, she was obviously you know someone who. Believed in in herself and her own capacities. She put herself through um, secretarial college, didn't she? She has studied accountancy. She obviously wanted to make a real life for herself and, and of course, those Presbyterian roots would have encouraged a strong sense of the importance of education.
1: All true. She would have gone on to university in a different setting. There was no way that she was going to be able to afford to go to university. So she set off to do night school. And funnily enough, at school, she was very interested in um, ancient history and all of that. So she had a broad, a broadened interest in, in education. And she always spoke in life of being given, the, uh, taking the opportunity of a first chance. So this was the war years by the time she uh, was starting out in employment. And she had various ac- accountancy jobs. She'd done accountancy at night school. Then she went on to do her study for charters accountancy. And because it was the war years, she was able to get a position as a chief accountant in a fairly large firm. And from there, she learned how to manage. She managed the whole of the figures. For a young girl, which I suppose she was in her early 20s, she got the confidence of being able to do the work that mostly or largely has been done by men. And she met her husband-to-be, Sam Gilfoyle, at night school in the last year's um, last year's of study which was just after the war and he'd been um, flying for the RAAF and he'd flown with the Americans and he'd come back and he'd decided to go into counseling or to finish his studies and that's how they met. Look, she was very like Enid Lyons in that. She was bright to start with but she called herself a woman of her day or woman of her time but she wasn't a woman of her times in terms of what she achieved but they were women who didn't set out with a blazing idea of where they wanted to go, but they took the opportunities Within it lines, it was really like hurdles. She jumped them. But they took the opportunities that They, they never balked. They never said, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. I, you know, I've got children or I couldn't possibly do that. I'm just a woman. They just took whatever came their way, and that's what she meant by first chance. Given the opportunity, she took it.
0: Just And, and by the sounds of an incredibly pragmatic person too, she wasn't sort of too you know, wound up about ideologies or, or, um, you know, I guess what what society was telling her she could or couldn't do. She just, you know, made do with her circumstances and her skills and her incredible abilities, let's be honest. And she must have had great self-belief too because she, I mean, she would have no doubt come up Against various forms of sexism throughout her employment, where you know people would have questioned her role in the accounting profession as a as a woman, and perhaps questioning whether she shouldn't have stayed at home with children.
1: Well, she never actually spoke about those sort of things. Is funnily enough, one of the companies she worked with in the early part of um, her career, and in the early part of the year, it was a Japanese firm that had to be closed down after Japan. Became Ended up at war with Australia oh, um, She said she always had really good relations With Japanese thereafter Because she understood that This was the import-export trade Look, She possibly did have that But she never noticed it And it's possible at the time she was rising There was no chance of asking putting those questions Because there was no competition much with men But she managed the job She did it well Then when she married and had children She went to working from home She opened an accountancy business Of her own. So she probably bypassed a lot of that. Uh, Later on, it would be in in politics where she might have met with some of that that, um, male chauvinism or whatever we we, uh, call it these days.
0: (laughs) Tell me, Anne. Um, what about her journey into politics? How did she get politically active? So you know she's come from well, her her parents at least have come from Belfast. She's born there. Well, you know she's not Irish Catholic. She's she's Presbyterian. So you know she's she's coming she's coming from Ireland, a family of migrants. Yes, they're not part of Irish Catholic community, but you know it's definitely you tend to think of. Um, Irish migrants to Australian is not on the liberal side of politics as a, as a sort of, you know, huge stereotype here. So it's interesting her journey well, into politics but, but journey into into the centre-right as well.
1: Well, it's interesting partly because it didn't come from her family. Her family were very, I suppose, alert, well-educated. Her dad died. She said that they, they never belonged to any political party where they lived because there was a Labor seat. And there was no, I suppose, in those days, it would have been a United Australia Party place that they would have felt at home in. It was basically when she met Stan. Stan's mother was a real goer. She was a member of the AWN, uh, the Australian Women's National League, oh, AWNL, yes. yeah, with Elizabeth and they lived in, or, yeah. Yep, they lived in Essendon, and she was also a very good friend of Ivy Wedgwood, who she was involved with the AWNL. In, in Essendon. Now, the AWNL was a, a ferociously amazing group of women. May Couchman, who had been the, the strength of, of the AWNL in Victoria, and the women of the AWNL were really a spine in some ways for the Liberal Party of Australia because they had a network of women all over the state and they, they were the ones who did a lot of the campaigning for the United Australia Party, and they were invaluable, and Menzies knew that and brought them in as a, a major force in the Liberal Party. Now, Ivy Wedgwood, and through Stan, Margaret got involved in the Liberal Party when she married. They lived in um, uh, Umdale, I think, uh, Glen Iris, one of those others, and they joined the local branch. I think they joined South Camberwell, and Stan was very involved, and his mother had enrolled him in the Liberal Party, the minute it was formed, he was in, he was up flying for the for the forces, and the mother went down and enrolled him. So he was involved in the Liberal Party, and Margaret was involved too. And in fact, in those days, the Liberal Party must have been very exciting because it was a young party, and a lot of the people that were were the backbone of it were young people, and a lot of them were married couples so much so that they passed a resolution at one of the branch meetings that something to do with, you know, a married person could vote for the, for the other partner or some such thing because there were so many of these couples. Then she began to get um, appointed to positions and she was uh, Secretary of the Women's Division or something when she, was, um, when she put herself forward for nomination. The whole idea of women getting into politics, I think, until recent times, the problem for the conservative side of politics is that unlike Labor, and, and in those days, the conservative side of politics were, were doing better with women, getting women into seats than, not many, but than Labor. Yes. Labor was much more chauvinistic. They, In the Labor Party, there are all sorts of divisions and sections and whatever. So you can learn your way up. You become an apparatchik in the party. The women's section in Victoria was very strong and so it was through the women's section that Margaret got her experience and she knew how to do meetings. When she went to Parliament, she said she'd been up to, to Canberra to Parliament House on a few, a few occasions. She was quite familiar with it because she'd been there for the Liberal Party meeting. So she, got her, she cut her teeth being part of the South Camberwell branch and then part of the big organisation, uh, Secretary of the Women's Section, whatever. And when she nominated, when uh, Ivy Wedgwood. would... Uh, retired in 1970 she was at the same height of experience as Navi Widgwood was when she went into into uh, the Senate.
0: Now, Margaret Guilfoyle joined the Senate in 1971 as a senator for mm-hmm. Victoria, but she was obviously politically active from the from the 50s, from the early 50s when mm. she joined the Liberal Party, mm. which is, of course, when Robert Menzies was, was Prime Minister until 1966. Mm. Did she have much to do with Menzies? I mean, was there something about Menzies as the leader that attracted her to the Liberal Party? I mean, beyond the fact that um, her husband Stan's mother had signed... Sign stand up and therefore, and therefore, Margaret up.
1: (laughs) It's very interesting as you do this research for uh, a person from a state. The states are very important in the Liberal Party. Um, What I found very interesting doing Margaret was that she had a number of personal connections with people who were Victorian Liberals, you know, and the person that she said that influenced her. A lot was Henry Bolte. And Henry Bolte gave her some idea of the, the value of service. And because the states are in charge of all of that area. And I suppose basically she would have absolutely latched on to the idea, the Mincy's idea of the small person being responsible for themselves, small business owner, the yeah. um, family, all of that stuff as well. And that was very much coming out of her Presbyterian background, which was also Mindy's background. Yes, and and the Presbyterian background is also one that is asking for individual involvement and individual commitment to you know whatever is the project that you're undertaking. It's less hierarchical than some of the other Christian religions. Anyway, she she certainly values of um, individuality, but she also remarked on. How she came to understand the value of service, and that included when she became social services minister, the, the the idea that you have to take some responsibility for those who can't manage themselves. But she was very much against taking all responsibility. She didn't believe in the sort of social estate kind of stuff. It's very interesting when you get to what she did with social services, how she managed to work around.
0: Yeah, this one, sure. but
1: not that one. But that mm.
0: abiding sense of a of a duty to to others mm. was obviously yes. very very yes. important that to her. That. Yes, that, that needed that yep. were in need. Mm. Yeah, mm. T- tell me, Anne. Um, she Margaret Guilfoyle enters politics, and um, as a senator, you are um, you know, very much involved in the committee work of the parliament, of course. And she took a lot of committee roles that were in line with her mm. professional experience having having been an accountant which i guess was a little bit strange because when women were in politics they were probably expected particularly at that time to be interested in in so called women's issues or the sort of softer portfolios but but that was not Margaret Gibfolds background she she did have an accounting background she was interested in the economy and and she was interested in 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 welfare issues as well mm. But she was really trying to eschew that kind of I'm I'm just going to be uh, you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: there for just women. She was there for all Victorians and and also wanted to make the use of her of her incredible qualifications and, and experience. Didn't she when she was in the parliament?
1: Her husband Stan was working with um, one of the big mineral mining companies, honestly, iron, I think. And when she it's <laughs> quite interesting when she got the nomination. Which was well, they. I think Stan was half hoping she didn't. They had a cog club round the table <laughs> at the evening how they were going to manage, and I think it, it wasn't. It wasn't easy from all, or, or, you know, I, lots of the things I, that were said. I
0: remember um, a similar conversation with my husband. Yes, when I, I ran for Parliament is. And I think he was. It's quite always happy. the women, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's
1: always the women. Yeah, you know, but anyway, he was. Um, he he said at one stage he was quite happy to end up being the, the Prince Philip type guy that walked three steps behind, but. What, what he told her was, he said, don't go after things that are just for the women. You know what I mean? And he said, you've only had secretariat experience. You've now got to get political experience. So I think in many ways he was hard-headed enough behind her to, to, to sharpen her own pragmatic approach to things. And she got involved in um, some of the financial committees needed knowledge of mining. And she, in her, major, in her maiden speech, she speaks quite a bit about mining and its contribution to Australia. And as time went on, that's how she did become much more experienced than aver- the average female MP in areas which had been seen to be a man's domain. And, uh, and mining was a big one. And, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the private sector and the private sector's uh, value to the state, which is what she did. But again, the thing that was very interesting in her early years was the Whitlam experiment. And being in the Senate, she saw it up close when the dismissal came and there's quite some some interesting stuff that she noticed (laughs) that happened at that time. It was pretty, it was that November the 11th, 1975 was a pretty remarkable day for anyone who was in the service.
0: Yes, indeed. Did she have any particular anecdotes that she shared from that? There are a couple
1: there. There are a couple there. Paul Kelly had a few but they were very important because they had to hold the line and there were a couple of senators who were wavering at the idea of blocking supply, and of course, she's mentioned a couple of times in Paul Kelly's book on the on the dismissal, and her own recollections of how they held a couple of the senators strong in the face of the uh, inevitable collapse of the Whitlam government.
0: Quite an extraordinary period, of course, in Australian political history. But mm. would have been um, would have been even more interesting being on the Senate floor at the time. Um, mm. And tell me, I wanted to dig into Margaret Guilfoyle's achievements as a minister. She was firstly Minister for Social Security and then Finance Minister. What were her particular achievements, which were considerable, weren't they, during those two um, two well, periods
1: um, yeah. holding those portfolios? Well, it's interesting. She did pretty well, considering Malcolm Fraser, who <laughs> was a mercurial figure, and <laughs> She, I, I think, it was only one occasion where he left her holding the, ba- holding the baby. It was on, uh, I think, funeral. They were going to uh, discontinue this funeral allowance, which was uh, about forty dollars or something. But there was reasons why it should be stopped because it was mostly went to to people who didn't need it. But anyway, he he backed down on that and left her holding the baby, having said he was going to uh, to. Uh, Uh, ended. But where she was very successful there had been, I spoke to some of the public servants who'd been working with her and the Labour government under Hayden, not under Cairns who was I gather a pretty hopeless treasurer they had been thinking about the idea of ending the tax rebates for families and for income earners and switching it all over from the child endowment payment to a complete family allowance. Anyway that hadn't got very far. When Margaret came in she spearheaded that reform. And so under Margaret Gilfoyle, the government no longer would do tax rebates because tax rebates mainly helped the people who had money. You had to have an income, you had yes, to have right. a certain income to get the repaid. Yeah. And it went to the fathers, whereas child and never went to the mothers. So they moved it all over to a much much bigger, bigger family allowance, which went to the mother. And that then really was important for the families that were much more struggling, the struggling families than than in the previous um, the previous uh, arrangement. So that was her first big um, big reform. She was also very good at getting Malcolm Fraser to say yes, <laughs> which we look back on. Some people look back on and say yes, and that's the reason why the Fraser government got into such debt. Well, maybe. Considering what we now hand out from government, it wasn't very, very much. But it was a time of high inflation um, and it was a time of increasing government spending, not be, not being able to get on top of it. Even the Razor Gang in the 80s, it didn't do much, John Howard called it the damp squib. <laughs> because the forces were such that inflation was raging. You know, Anyone who doesn't know what inflation does, they'd better get out the textbooks and find out because we're talking about it again in yes, the United that's States right. It is a, it is a beast. And it, it, every time you try to do something, it jumps at you and you, you just get behind the eight ball. So Malcolm Fraser was bringing in um, a certain amount of um, tax deductions. And I remember because my husband Jared was working at that time for a minister in the Fraser government and the frustration was that you gave a tax deduction, but people thought it was a wage, a salary increase because wages had to keep going up to counterinflation and as wages went up, employees found it harder and harder to pay the bills and then they went out and on it went. So it inflation is a nasty beast. But in the middle of all of that, Margaret managed to get Fraser to keep on backing her wish to keep the reforms going and keep the social welfare spending at a level that she thought was sufficient. And you know, she'd get a billion dollars out of him. And other people would be looking around in the cabinet room and thinking, "How did she do that?" Well, she did it. What was her and secret? On occasion, man, do you think? What was her well? Secret? On one occasion, <laughs> they had come to an agreement in the in the ministry or the upper cabinet or whatever that they were going to agree to what she wanted—a billion dollars or something or other—and or seven seven billion dollars. I don't remember what the figure was. And she, Fraser was leaving to go overseas, and she he didn't make the statement. So Margaret went out. In front of the media, and said, "Well, this has been agreed to," and she got herself the cool whatever billion dollars it was that she needed. So she was a really good operator, and because she was a Victorian, and because Fraser was a Victorian, there was a great amount of respect between them. Whether they had, they would have had their differences on many occasions, but it was all done at a very professional level. And so Margaret probably had Margaret certainly had Phil Lynch grinding his teeth. He was furious. <laughs> he was protector.
0: Tell me, Anne, what about her role in, um, in establishing daycare and out-of-school hours care? She, she, um, she was a instigator, wasn't she, in the Commonwealth's role in, in, that, in that, those types of services?
1: Yeah, she had a – there was a woman who was very much um, in the bureaucracy concerned with families and family care and whatever, and they got on really well. And this woman was quite a labour person and but she spoke to me very warmly about Margaret and how they clicked over that and there was one occasion they were trying to get this particular grant for women's refuges and they had all the mothers and children up in Canberra and they were meant to do it and all Margaret would say was don't worry Margaret to her friend or her bureaucrat I'll fix it I'll fix it and then she'd fix it and then they were ready to have the the uh, ga- gathering with the mothers and everything else Margaret said, oh, don't worry about the minister Let's go ahead And so all they got all, you know, bad. And Margaret was like the mother You know, she was handing out the cakes and the sandwiches And helping helping the mothers there And they had a, a great celebration That they got this extra money for, for, uh, for women's refugees But, you know, it was uh, Again, uh, this is where women in politics make such a difference I'm not saying that all women are terrific And all men are bad or anything like that It's just that mixture of the ability to emphasise the certain segments of society at the same time as being professional enough to work at the top to get the, the policy formulation right.
0: Well, I, I mean, I think her her role in um, in really sort of starting the growth of the modern childcare industry is, is extraordinary and very much underappreciated. And... Uh, you know she would have had that experience as a working mother herself prior to entering politics or well, of course being in politics and that understanding about the need to provide working mothers who were increasingly part of the workforce of course through the 70s and into the 80s providing them with that with that support through these these commonwealth funded funded daycare centres so you know I mean maybe other ministers would have done it in time but I think we're very lucky that we had um, Margaret Guilfoyle in the parliament and in the ministry too to drive through those reforms because they really were um, a game changer for so many working mums
1: yeah and the the key to it all too was that she got it done I mean Margaret Guilfoyle was very much she's very pragmatic and she was always her mind was always on the outcome. So it wasn't a matter of sitting around, having a conflag, passing it over to the ministerial, uh, to, to the bureaucracy, asking for them to come back with a, a whatever, a recommendation, whatever. Margaret would work out the steps to getting it done and get it done. And she got it done often by being, you know, quite cute about how she put out a statement or, or convinced, them, you know, Prime Minister that this was going to have to happen. And I think many other ministers, I mean, I, I did talk to John Howard. Um, he was very flattering and complimentary and whatever, but I often used to wonder whether he also ground his teeth occasionally at the money that was being spent. But, look, it was the beginning of us taking much more care for the people who needed that support, you know? And and when, when people think about the great Labor moment and, and Whitlam and all of that, it really didn't happen there. I mean, what, what, what I found as I looked at it was that what might have been the dreams of the Whitlamites, Margaret actually made them happen in in the sense of those those social welfare reforms.
0: Yeah, quite quite extraordinary. So mm-hmm. she was she was um, obviously you know, unusual, and there were no other women in cabinet. And um, she was you know quite a trailblazer, obviously. So she would have been remarkable in the photographs of the cabinet, and and of course in uh, you know in these sort of Australian political media landscape but so she became a an object of of interest for journalists didn't she and um and her gender, of course, was was a point of observation by the media. Um, I understand when she was appointed to the Joint Prices Committee, um, the Herald newspaper in Melbourne described her as a housewife with a big say on prices. And then the Sydney Morning Herald, upon her appointment as Shadow Minister for Education, described her as a mother with political ambitions. And <laughs> and she was, it was interesting um, reading that she was she was compared with Margaret Thatcher, who was, of course, politically active at the, exactly the same time. So Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady. It was um, Dame Margaret Guilford was the Iron Butterfly. So, <laughs> but, uh, but, but how did, how did uh, Margaret receive those comments and, and that sort of, con- I guess, constantly being critiqued and examined through the lens of her, her gender?
1: She was tolerant. She obviously preferred not to have it. And there were times when she, you know, she'd remark on not wanting it, and then the journalist would go away and use all the metaphors he could compa- comparing, you know, metaphors about the home, metaphors about the mother, metaphors about that. But look, I think as I read Margaret, she just didn't make a fuss. If that was what he was going if that's what the journalist was going to say, we'll let him do it. I mean, the thing about those metaphors and those references, after they'd made all of that, in their columns. They did get down to the the meat and the the meat and the sandwich. What they they whatever she was proposing or doing, it came across eventually. So she kind of put up with it and then but she never lost the message that's what she was doing. Which I suppose was the contradiction of the iron butterfly. You know, the iron bit got through as well as the butterfly. But it wasn't it was a generation where, you know, if they were going to sort of make all that stuff or you, you know, she'd put up with it, but she would still you know, hammer home what it was she wanted to say, and she did. Mm. But you know, and funnily enough, in politics, women are going to have to face that. I mean, when you look at what they do with males to get to the top, <laughs> they've always got to be sort of compared to to to, to sort of arch arch fiends and strong heavyweights and all this kind cur- It's always the the metaphors.
0: Well, yeah, reg- regardless of who you are and where you've come from, you're going to face a, a fair degree of criticism and backlash <laughs> sorry, in politics.
1: And then if you're a man, a man and you get, they use heavy metaphors, everyone says, oh, isn't that lovely? Oh, he does, oh, he, he takes the kiss to sport. Oh, he's that wonderful. You know? What do you do? Got with. So she sort of, she sort of just, you know, it was like um, standing, taking the, the mess and just. Pushing her aside and then thundering on you know, she, she was good. Um, I think she I think the family managed but I don't know how easy it was on the kids Dan implied that it was a, it was tough on the kids um, I didn't get too much I didn't want really too much no but um, he gave me the impression that you know the kids but they could have also been in an era when other kids mothers didn't work so that you know maybe their friends and whatever. Had mums at home, and they thought they should. Who knows? But it wasn't easy what she did, um, and and I think that she did it well, partly because she had a good partner back at base. Stan was a good partner back at base, and I think she enjoyed it. You know what I mean? It's nice to get away from the from the from the kitchen. <laughs> I know Enid. I know Enid did. <laughs> Enid loved getting on the boat and sailing out of Tasmania. <laughs> Leaving so, someone else to, to to call the kids home from school or whatever. So t- tell me,
0: Anne. Uh, so Margaret was minister for social security, and then she became in 1980 minister for finance. So she's she's gone from being a minister who is spending a lot of taxpayers' money. And uh, and uh, incredibly adept at convincing the treasurer and the and the prime minister to um, allow her to spend a lot of taxpayers' money on really innovative programs and progressive programs and, you know, she was a trailblazer, um, not only in her personal achievements but in her professional achievements in what she did for for Australian particularly Australian families. But she becomes finance minister, and now now she has to perform a very, very different role, almost the sort of complete opposite to what she's been doing, which is, you know, the bean counter of the cabinet. Um, how did she marry those two experiences? It must have been quite a <laughs> quite a change of course.
1: <laughs> As John Howard said, the Razor Gang, gang proved to be a damn squid. Um, Howard obviously had had ideas of how to cut, but he got overruled by, by the uh, Prime Minister and... Um, at one stage, Margaret was seen to be the sort of gatekeeper. She was the one that, you know, all the ministers had to, if they had a, a proposal that they wanted to put to Cabinet, whatever, um, uh, she had to sort of tick it off. And in one sense, I suppose she maybe stopped a lot of proposals going through. But, look, the thing was they didn't really cut. And that was the reason why, in, in the end, the Fraser government didn't succeed. It was a bad time. They didn't bring forward the proposals that Howard wanted to bring forward, which would have made him the mean and nasty treasurer. The elections around the corner. I think three-year elections make it very hard. Um, those governments which have managed to pull the to pull the economy into shape and even get um, um, get the deficit down, whatever, um, have surpluses, whatever. That's that's no mean feat. No mean feet at all. And that's why the power government was seen as being so successful. And um, by 1983, things really weren't going very well at all. And they lost. But Margaret, look, Margaret did her job, as Margaret always did. But as I say, they didn't really cut very much. And uh, her social services, social security, whatever, kept on going. Very happily.
0: Well, maybe in the end that was her intention.
1: Maybe. <laughs> you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. <laughs> um,
0: she, she retired from politics in 1987, um, you know, leaving an incredible legacy for um, the Australian Parliament, for Australian women, such an incredible role model, what do you think are the lessons that people can learn from um, Margaret Guilford's example, um, both both men and women, um, political lessons, personal lessons, policy lessons? There there must be so many.
1: Margaret Guilford didn't sort of think she could wing it. She needed to brief herself thoroughly before she did something. And I think um, politics has become very difficult for a lot of people, but on the side of, of Politics where people do well are the people who read and who understand what it is that they're talking about. They don't just make big splash. She was terrific at figures. John Howard and others that I spoke to, you know, she could cast her eye down a set of figures like a good accountant, and it didn't take her a minute to work out whether something didn't add up or whatever. People like Rod Camp, who knew her, that you know, she was terrific. You could take her. um, a proposal from, or something, or maybe a correspondence that's come back from the department, and she'd say, Oh, they've changed the paragraph here. So she was, she knew her job, she, and that's very important. And she didn't go outside of her, her area. I mean, she didn't try and become Attorney General or go into something where she wouldn't have had a hope of, of mastering. She took the knocks. I mean, she went through, I mean, her, her lead up to getting the nomination. She had been, oh, let me think, that was 1970 and she'd been in the party for fifty for 20 years, steadily, or best part of 20 years. She didn't expect to sort of get there in five minutes. She thoroughly worked her, her pace. And her first chance, you know, the opportunities came, she took them. And I think that a lot of women especially take the chance, take the opportunity, don't say no, it may come back. But for some of the, the blokes, on the other side, don't think you can do it all with just charm and noise. You know, you really have to be, if you look at the, the people in politics, males, who've done very well, whether it be John Howard or Robert Menzies or even Gough Whitlam, who didn't do so well when he was prime minister, but he was okay as a leader. Curtin, these are people who knew politics. They read about politics. They They knew the way politics worked. And Minty, who knew so much the first time round, had to go, you know, go flat on his face and get up and, and do it again. And so did John Howard at one point. So um, it's a long, long road to, to wherever you're headed in politics. It's a tough road, as you well know, a tough road, tenacity. Margaret, in a sense, didn't have the troubles that some would have I mean she she someone would look back and say she had a dream run because she got that nomination and she chose to retire when she wanted to retire she was in the Senate maybe it was she was there at the right time that can always be a thing in politics but she was also very loyal to the party and I think that's a lesson right now that people on the non- labor side of politics ought to be taken into account. She didn't say she got there because she was Margaret Guilford. She didn't go on Sky News and suggest that she could do it on her own, having made her name from the Liberal Party. She didn't then decide to form a new party or decide to go out and try and get votes with lots of money, as I'm thinking of at the moment with other other political figures going around the town at the moment. Um, she knew that she got there because of the party, and she was to the end. She was loyal. Now, she did believe in the beginning that women didn't need a leg up. By the end, she did. She was very strong in the mid-1990s. She was very strong at supporting all the moves within the Liberal Party, which were very strong at that time, to get women into nominations, to get women... But but I think, for right now, that is a really big lesson because there are people who've made their way into the public arena and got a name for themselves only because they were a member of the Liberal Party or member of the National Party. And then they they think that they can go out and just do their thing, which doesn't happen to align with whatever it is that the party is doing at the moment, and sing their song and expect people to think that it was all about them. And really, if you're going to do what – you're going to get into politics, and I think on the Labor side, they probably force this understanding much more – if you're going to get there through the party, then you've got to understand that you owe the party, and and you have to have really don't chip. You have to have really good reason to to leave or to, to you know to take it on. But you can't be a big name just because you're somebody, Jack Jack Frost or whatever, you know. And she 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 knew that she got there because of the party, and she's was very really good.
0: Yeah. Well, and of course, um, Menzies would have known that himself um, he you know he he'd become politically active, obviously before the liberal party existed cuz he created the liberal party you know then the Nationalists, the united australia party but they were parties that were were really internally very unhappy and and unsuc- and became very unsuccessful and it was through those you know the early 40s thinking about what how do we bring together the the non labor side of politics the center right forces the women's leagues the um, you know various sort of well, in the end it was 18 different groups that came together in 1944 in Albury and Canberra to form the Liberal Party, but I mean that was uh, an incredible moment and uh, an incredible set of ideas that has been so long standing too. And it it's it's bigger. I mean, as is the ALP too. They're bigger than any one individual. They have a set of ideas that, that people coalesce around. But uh, but to think that you are bigger than than that organisation and that. Political philosophy, well, um, I guess it's uh, it's for those who, so those who have a, as an ego. I guess it's
1: yeah, or they forget why they're there, why they became who they are. You know, they um, anyway that that's for them to find out. But I do think that that was one of her strengths. In, at, after she left politics, that you know, it was always she always worked for and within the liberal family.
0: Yeah, well, just incredible tenacity, hard work, um, Self belief, but loyalty too, really. As you, as you've so um, beautifully explained, Anne, uh, and and uh, and such an incredible role model to us all, Dame Margaret Guilfoyle so and Henderson. Thank you so much for talking to me on the Afternoon Light podcast about uh, Dame Margaret Guilfoyle, Australia's first woman to hold a cabinet-level ministerial portfolio and the first woman to hold a major economic portfolio. What a woman and uh, what an individual, and uh, it's just been wonderful to have this discussion.
1: Been a pleasure. Thanks, Georgina. See you later.
0: The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.